Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Offended by sexually explicit language, please cover their ears now and I will raise my hand where you can uncover them. That was the landmark 2009 TED Talk given by Cindy Gallup, founder and CEO of Make Love Not Porn. Her LinkedIn profile says, I like to blow shit up. I am the Michael Bay of business. She's ours for the hour. Stay with us. Today's episode is brought to you by Health Warrior, maker of Chia Bars. Why sacrifice taste for health when we put a man on the moon, after all? Sporting only 5 grams of sugar and 100 calories each, Health Warrior Chia Bars are the only bar with superfood chia seeds as the number one ingredient. They've become my go-to power snack with flavors like coconut, chocolate peanut butter, dark chocolate, banana nut, and personal favorite, mango. Pick some up at stores like Whole Foods, Wegmans, Target, or for my RVA listeners, Elwood Thompson's. If you're bold enough to buy a a box of 15 bars, get 15% off at healthwarrior.com by entering code FULL15 at checkout. And by Elwood Thompson's. The success of Elwood Thompson's is determined by customer connection, steward happiness, and local community engagement. We intend to grow our business by offering clean, high-quality products at fair prices with friendly, knowledgeable customer assistance. Elwood's is a mission-first driven business. Real local RVA, and you must check out Brunch at Elwood's now served every weekend, Saturdays till 11 a.m., Sundays till 2 p.m., and The Beat and Indian Wednesdays. Visit them at the top of Carytown and at elwoodthompsons.com. Joining us from NPR New York City is none other than Cindy Gallup, founder and CEO of Make Love Not Porn. She's a veteran ad executive, uh, I think whatever is left of Madison Avenue. She's a self-supported bootstrapping entrepreneur, gives speeches all across the world, and she's ours for the hour. How are you, madam? Thrilled to be here. Thank you. I have to say we're paying three times the typical ISDN rate because Cindy's accent, uh, her voice is so mellifluous, um, it, it just consumes so much bandwidth. <laughs> you should be honored I'm, to have it. I should be paying you actually for this hour I'm, of your I'm voice. I'm deeply flattered and honored. <laughs> Thank you so much. I have a question. Like many people, the touch point to you um, is is they saw your TED Talk and your speech. And I mean, it's brutally candid. And you came out there and it was effectively a declaration of independence from, I guess, uh, the male dominated uh, adult film and pornography world. It's always been, you know, ever since the what late 60s and early 70s and eight millimeter film and and places in Times Square and uh, San Fernando Valley and whatnot. This was made by men for men uh, w- with men's desires chiefly um, at the forefront, really looking at, at, at women, the actresses as as commodities. And so what was the tipping point for you to realize that, gosh, um, I'm really going to make a career pivot out of advocating for a new uh, adult industry? Um, first of all, um, there was no moment like that. And secondly, that's not precisely what I'm doing. So I'll clarify both those points. Um, the first is that Make Love Not Porn is an accident. I never consciously, intentionally set out to do anything that I now find myself doing uh, with it. Um, it came about out of direct personal experience. I date younger men. And through dating younger men, I began realizing about nine or 10 years ago, so this is before the media ever picked up on this issue, 
that I was encountering what happens when today's total freedom of access to hardcore porn online meets our society's equally total reluctance to talk openly and honestly about sex. The The convergence of both of those factors results in porn becoming, by default, the sex education of today in not a good way. And so, you know, being a naturally action-oriented person, I went, I'm going to do something about this. So nine years ago, I put up on No Money, this tiny clunky website at makelovenotporn.com, a porn world versus real world, pretty much as a sort of public service, launched a TED, as you mentioned, um, decided to be very explicit because I knew that audience wouldn't get this issue unless I was pretty straightforward about it. I'm the only TED speaker to have said the words, come on my face on the TED stage six times. Um, The talk went viral as a result, and it drove this extraordinary response to my tiny clunky website that I had never anticipated. And I realized I'd uncovered a huge global social issue and saw an opportunity to do what I believe in very strongly, which is that the future of business is doing good and making money simultaneously. I saw the opportunity for a business solution to this huge um, untapped global need. Um, but, but the issue there is that, you know, Make Love Not Porn is not anti-porn because the issue isn't porn. The issue is that we don't talk about sex in the real world. If we did, amongst a whole host of other benefits, people would then be able to bring a real-world mindset to the viewing of what is simply artificial entertainment. Our tagline at Make Love Not Porn is pro-sex, pro-porn, pro-knowing the difference. Our mission is one thing only, to help make it easier for the world to talk about sex, and that's why I came up with the idea for makelovenotporn.tv, which is an entirely user-generated, crowdsourced video-sharing platform that enables anybody to socially share their real-world sex. We call ourselves the social sex revolution, with the emphasis on social, because all of this is making it easier to talk about sex in the real world. Uh, Madam, I'm usually really in control of my interviews, but your accent intimidates me. I just think it's so great. I I feel like if I make myself a little vulnerable here, you admonished me at the very top. I don't know if I want my mother or mother-in-law listening to this episode. I'm just a I'm just a schlubby, you know, middle-aged dad with a podcast, and you really nicely agreed to come on. Now let me let me bring this back to the incumbent. Uh, pornography industry in the United States Mm, because it gets written about, but it doesn't get written about. It's a massive Mm. bandwidth hog. It's enormous. It's there. You see Quartz pieces about, for example, how uh, porn has completely overtaken uh, internet service providers in India. Uh, Mobile has completely changed uh, the world for this, that it's fast-forwarded the disruption in that industry, which used to be known for theaters and Times Squares and and films and VHS and Betamax and everything, and it's taken it into hyperspeed of disruption and dislocation uh, because you, you, you very quickly kind of separate the losers from the winners in that. Tell me, is there a number that you subscribe to out there for how big this industry is globally? Um, now, here's the interesting thing, um, because the one thing I did not realize when I embarked on building makelovenotporn.tv was that my team and I would fight a huge battle every day to build it. Essentially because every piece of business infrastructure any other tech startup can take for granted, we can't because the small print always says no adult content. This is all pervasive across every area of the business. And the reason I'm telling you this is that that is why it is impossible for anybody to answer the question you've just asked. Um, There is no com score of sex and porn out there. By the way, that's a billion-dollar business opportunity being missed, um, and it's one that I want to remedy with um, what I'm doing in the field of sex tech. 
Republic, which which I'll come on to talk about. Um, but but no, um, nobody can give you any reliable statistics on the size of the porn industry. When I see an Economist now, story, by the way, that says plausible hmm. estimates put worldwide industry revenues at forty to fifty billion dollars, I mean, how do you even back the envelope that? Um, uh, oh my gosh, that is minuscule compared to what the revenues could be. But but here's the issue. So I um, mentioned earlier that when I um, did my TED talk back in 2009, I got an extraordinary response to it. I got thousands of emails from people all over the world, young and old, male and female, straight and gay. In amongst those emails, much to my surprise when this first began happening, were a lot of emails from people in the porn industry, specifically millennials in porn, because millennials in porn are like millennials anywhere else. They're entrepreneurial, ambitious, questioning and challenging the old world order, and they want to be a part of the new. So I found that 20-something porn stars and porn directors, male and female, were reaching out to me saying, we love Make Love Not Porn, we want to help. And by the way, they are. MakeLoveNotPorn.tv is the only place on the internet where porn stars share the sex they have offset in the real world with their real world partners, because porn stars have real world sex too. But as a result of that, um, I know a lot of people in the porn industry, which by the way, is very interested in and supportive of what we're doing. No one's tried to disrupt them in a very different sort of way in a very long time. And, you know, I can tell you that, you know, talking to my friends in porn, um, you know, um, I'm, we're friends at Make Love Not Porn with Pornhub. We're a mutual admiration society. And I've asked Pornhub this question because they do a phenomenal job with their own data and they have no idea what the size of the industry is. And so um, I have inadvertently um, become a champion and advocate for the porn industry on, on two fronts. Um, the first is that the work I do championing gender equality and diversity absolutely translates into porn. Because, you know, one of the reasons um, the porn industry is struggling at the moment is because at the top of it, as with every other industry, is a closed loop of white guys talking to white guys about other white guys. The day we have a porn industry that is 50-50 equally informed, led and driven from the top by women just as much as by men, that therefore makes 50% of its output targeted at women just as much as at men, as opposed to currently mistakenly thinking men are the only audience, and that therefore, importantly, makes 50% of its money out of women just as much as men, is the day that we have a porn industry and porn that looks completely different. More innovative, more creative, more disruptive, way more lucrative, and the same is true of every other industry. May I, may Movies, I pause you? May I, may I pause sure, you and, and channel the, the mm. kind of the puritanical, mm. theistic, you know, sure. American with, with mm. uh, prudishness and values is... Um, I've always looked at this industry, and I'm re referring back to things like uh, Rashida Jones's documentary, Hot Girls Wanted, about exploitation in Miami's amateur porn industry. Uh, in personal conversations I've had with people who've come in and out of the industry, and obviously reading things throughout the years, especially with people who retired after the fact and were burned out, um, women and men, that this remains a bastion of exploitation, that it feeds on people who came, for example, to, to Southern California or Miami seeking to do something else and kind of flunked out and ended up in the San Fernando Valley or in a warehouse, um, not really unionized. A lot of them had uh, dislocation at home or they left their parents early on. Again, I don't know if I'm talking stereotype. I'm just telling you what I've learned in kind of talking to both exotic dancers and people in the industry and that I have never 
met someone, I've always cast it out maybe to interview someone or to profile someone who is truly happy and self-actualized in this industry saying, you know what? I get up on Monday morning and I want to go and dance as an artisan, as a person. I want to show the world and all my exhibitionist, sex-liberated grandeur. At, at best, Cindy, they tell me, well, it's a job um, and it lets me help my son and it helps me keep my ex-husband at bay. And at worst, I see scenarios like this James Dean thing and abusive characters taking advantage, almost like a like agricultural exploitation. And I don't know where my head is about this industry. It, it seems like it is just this this epicenter of of dark exploitation. What do you make of that, and what are your observations? Sure. So first of all, Robin, um, I need to introduce you to a bunch of my friends in porn who will absolutely represent um, the side of the industry that you say you've not yet experienced. And incidentally, I get very frustrated when people use the word porn like it's all one big homogenous mass. That's like using the word literature like it's all the same thing. But do you see? Do you see when I'm when I'm qualifying this by the kind of the agricultural porn, like where where women are the product, right? And I don't see I don't see I, I've never tasted kind of empowerment or sh- I, maybe self actualization was loaded, but I've never met anybody that's truly happy and excited in this industry. Um, I've met many people who are very happy and excited in the industry. Um, the reason why you are making the um, stereotyped assumptions you are th- th- there are a couple of reasons actually. The first is. So first of all, we all watch porn, we don't talk about it. Porn therefore exists in a parallel universe, in a shadowy other world. Porn therefore lacks a number of the tools that we use in other parts of our lives to curate them, um, to, to improve them. So for example, porn lacks curation and navigation. Or rather, it lacks socially acceptable curation navigation because there are sites that curate porn, but they're porn sites. Um, There is no Yelp of porn. There's no Yelp of porn because right now it's really okay to come into the office, stand by the water cooler on a Monday morning and go, I'm really bored of the restaurants I'm eating at. Who knows a new restaurant? It is not okay to come in, stand by the water cooler and go, I'm really bored of the porn I've been watching. Who knows some new porn? The reason that's an issue is because people who na- who are able to navigate the landscape of porn would find that there are many different facets to it beyond the one you're talking about. So, for example, you're talking about the air of porn the media likes to squawk about frequently, which is, oh, my God, women being dominated and submissive to misogynistic blah, blah, blah. blah. Um, funny enough, you never see the media squawking about that vast genre of porn that is for men who adore being dominated by and submitting to women. And the reason we don't see coverage of that is because it doesn't accord with the societal construct of masculinity. But um, the reason why um, um, people default stereotypes is because the answer to everything you're talking about that worries people about porn is not to shut down, censor, clamp down, block, repress. It is instead, potentially counterintuitively, to open up. Open up the dialogue around all of this in the way that I'm very pleased you and I are doing currently. But importantly, open up to welcoming, supporting and funding entrepreneurs like me who want to disrupt this whole world of sex for the better and most importantly, open up to allowing us to do business in the same way everybody else does. I mentioned earlier the enormous business obstacles when you have a legal adult venture. I'm very straightforward about the fact that every bank that refuses to bank a legal adult venture, every payment process that won't process payments, every business partner that will not work with a legal adult venture, they are directly responsible for all the bad things that happen in the adult industry. When you force an entire industry into the shadows and underground, you make it a lot easier for bad things to happen and you make it a lot more difficult for good things to happen. And so I'm trying to open up people's minds around this and to help 
what people see, that the way to change the future of porn is to actually be a part of disrupting, innovating, funding and supporting it. Cindy, I'm I'm not even trying to be inadvertently sexist or paternalistic <laughs> in saying this. And I think you know, I know you're in New York, I'm here, I'm here in, in Virginia, but I want to tell you that my position is not coming from this, you know, it's even a it's even like a post I've I've been told in the past that, you know, it's a it's a sexist thing to even want to protect women, to have that impulse that, oh, I'm the protector of women and everything. But I'm coming from a position of empathy, to be really honest with you, all bullshit aside. I'm I'm wondering if um, a, a lot of the women who come to this industry, are they fully informed? Are, I mean, uh, do, do, do they have do, uh, what you're seeing today, whether millennials or aged actresses or people from the era of VHS or DVDs or whatnot, do they realize what they are getting into? And does anybody have their welfare or enjoyment chiefly in mind. Sure. Again, I feel like there's something agricultural and exploitative about it. I don't yeah. I have never met anyone in this industry who's come to me and said it really gets me excited to go out there and do this. So first of all, of course there are parts of the porn industry that are exploitative, just like there are parts of the fast food industry that are exploitative. There are parts of the corporate white-collar industry that are exploitative. I can promise you that all around the world are as many women feeling thoroughly exploited in corporate offices as there are working the Let me industry. pause you. If I took a cross-section, let's say right now we go to Pornhub or any of these tuber sites and took 100 uh, names – right from the middle, we scroll from the top or bottom and polled them anonymously and said, what do you really feel about being in this industry? Would they on balance feel happy or exploited? The, the, the status quo right now, the here and now. Right. Um, so the status quo right now is that working in porn are a large number of absolutely phenomenal female and queer pornographers. So I would recommend that you go to the websites of, and you talk to an interview, Erica Lust of Lust Films in Barcelona, mm -hmm. Jennifer Lyon Bell of Blue Artichoke Films based in Amsterdam, uh, Jiz Lee and Shine Louise Houston of Pink White Films in San Francisco, Madison Young. I mean, I can give you a very long list of female and queer pornographers to talk to. And they will happily open up um, their porn stars to talk to you and you will get a very different picture to the one you're painting now. So I, I go back to my point about, um, you know, um, journalists call me and they say um, they want to interview me about porn. They'll say things like, so, Cindy, you know, do you feel that porn objectifies women? And I will say... I think that any industry that is dominated by men at the top inevitably produces output that is objectifying and objectionable and offensive to women. And then I will point them to the commercial advertising breaks in the Super Bowl. Mm. Our industry advertising is just as offensive, stereotyping and objectionable and makes just as many women feel exploited um, as a porn industry does. So um, you, you, you basically cannot judge an entire industry by one part of it. Um, the part you're talking about absolutely exists as, as parts do in other industries. What is making it infinitely worse um, in the porn industry is the fact that People, as I said, force the entire industry into the shadows and underground. Nobody wants to help whistleblowers. Nobody wants to shine a bright light into dark corners. No one wants to help porn stars unionize. And that is why in this context, um, and this is also the reason what I'm doing, I like to repurpose Wayne LaPierre of the NRA's infamous gun control quote. The only thing that stops a bad guy with a business is a good guy with a better business. 
Open up to allowing those better businesses to start and flourish and be supported, and you will see a very, very different porn industry. Cindy, as a European, uh, kind of with your with your with your cold eyes looking at us, what is it about the United States uniquely? And I go, you go back; it's easy to say that the puritanical background and whatnot. But I, for example, am an Iranian Jew, and I came to the United States, and I just remember the first time being shocked to see my uncle's Playboys. Um, that that like one of my first childhood memories was. You know, at his place, like Doritos and Playboys at his place, right? And then the first time, you know, the, the, the trauma of kind of seeing, what was it? It was like seventh grade. It was Debbie Does Dallas or something that this happens. And then later to, to read pieces and, and, and learn about it, um, this was all happening in parallel to human growth and development in junior high school and nobody talking about these things. And as you said, effectively, your default sex ed becoming this, this – um, Really hyperbolic uh, channel, which which talks about male dominated fantasies, uh, and all these people coming of age into that that medium. So first of all, um, Robin, I would I would stress that. I've been working on Make Love Not Porn for nine years now. Um, we're a global platform. This issue is not unique to the United States. I can mm. tell you this issue is the same everywhere. And the really important thing to realize is that in a because we are now living in a world where the average age at which a child is first exposed to hardcore porn online is eight years old, oh not, gosh. by the way, because they go looking for it, because they stumble across it, mm-hmm. inevitable, in the digital world we live in. Parents and teachers write to us that make love, not porn all the time. Um, many issues are being laid at porn's door that should be laid at societies. Again, the issue isn't porn. The issue is that we don't talk about sex in the real world. I have been trying for two and a half years to raise funding to build what our community is asking us for all the time, what I characterize as the Khan Academy of Sex Education. Khan Academy, the online tutoring platform, tutors on every other topic under the sun except this one. Educational technology, edtech, is exploding except in this area. And so, you know... um, and I can promise you, by the way, um, you know, parents are begging us for this. Um, Make Love Not Porn dot Academy. Um, we've bought the URL. You'll see our landing page um, on it. Um, is potentially a huge revenue generator, and yet I cannot find investors. Um, our biggest obstacle raising funding for Make Love Not Porn is the social dynamic that I call fear of what other people will think. Mm. Because it's never about what the person I'm talking to thinks. When you understand what we're doing, why we're doing it, no one can argue with it. The business case is clear. It is always their fear of what they think other people will think, which operates around sex more than any other area. That is holding us back as a society globally. And that's why, despite the fact that, as I said, I fight a huge battle every day to build Make Love Not Porn, that's why I keep doing this. Because we have to change the way we operate around sex and porn if we want the future of humanity to be a much better one. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We're joined by Cindy Gallup, founder and CEO of Make Love Not Porn. Uh, you will remember her famous TED Talk from a couple of years ago. How many years ago was it actually? Oh, my, oh my God. It was TED 2009, actually. TED 2009. Gosh, yep. I can't believe yep. almost a decade has transpired. Yep. And let me say about yep. uh, All the Sky Holdings is the world's first and only sex tech fund, which seeks to enhance sex tech business opportunities and further socialize sex. Uh, you've been outspoken on behalf of the fund, and you're saying you can't resolve destructive social ills like sex trafficking and sexual abuse and sexual violence until we change our sexual behaviors and mental constructs. And there's a paradox to that. I mean, you're, you're, you're advocating on behalf of kind of, a, you know, hyper transparency and a hyper candor uh, where, where people always kind of do this behind the curtains. Well, you know, it's funny, Robin, because, um, you know, I will occasionally get asked by usually some frightfully nice English woman at the BBC, oh, but Cindy, 
you know, sex is a private, intimate thing. Don't you feel that what you're doing with Make Love Not Porn, social sex, cheapens it? My response to that is, do me a favour, go to Google, enter into the search box the word porn, just like millions of children do every day. Go to the first page that comes up when you do that. Go to each of the 10 websites on it. Take a long, hard look at the homepage and then tell me that I shouldn't be doing what I'm doing. Hmm. And um, here's the reason why um, it is so profoundly important, Robin, because um, uh, I live my own philosophies. My startup is a manifestation of those. I believe that everything in life and business starts with you and your values. So I regularly ask people this question. What are your sexual values? And no one can ever answer me because we're not taught to think that way. Many of us, if we're fortunate, are born into families and environments where our parents bring us up to have good manners, a work ethic, a sense of responsibility, accountability. Nobody ever brings us up to behave well in bed. Mm. But they should because their empathy, sensitivity, generosity, kindness, honesty are as important as they are in every other area of our lives and our work where we are actively taught to exercise those values. So when we open up around sex, when we find it easier to talk about, what that means is that parents can begin bringing their children up to have good sexual values and good sexual behaviour as they do teach them good values and behaviour in every other area. We cease to bring up Brock Turner's, the Stanford rapist. We end rape culture. When we take the shame and embarrassment out of sex and normalise talking about it, we also end sexual harassment, sexual abuse, sexual violence, all areas where the perpetrators rely on the shame we've infused sex with to ensure their victims will never speak up never go to the authorities, never tell anyone. That's, that's how powerful opening up around sex can be. Cindy, tell me how somebody like a James Dean, uh, adult star, adult male film star extraordinaire, who's, who's lauded over the past several years as a, you know, almost like a borderline sex positive person. I think Lindsay Lohan has worked with him. Others out there, women have, have blown him kisses on, on Twitter and the likes until several months ago, these uh, really damning allegations come out that he's actually quite abusive and uh, disturbed on set. How is it that that Cosa Nostra is, is kept in an industry? After all, it was 2016 and not 1976. You, you would think that this stuff would sluice out and uh, people just wouldn't sit on it. Unfortunately, um, it goes back to the point I made earlier about. And tell us, tell us more about that on, on background, actually, for our uh, listeners. I remember reading about it and oh, just oh, yeah, being yeah, myth sure. that. Uh, okay, James Dean, uh, the uh, porn star, was viewed as a bit of a crossover um, um, star. Um, um, he did a um, film with Lindsay Lohan um, called The Canyons. Um, until um, about um, well over a year ago now, um, his ex-girlfriend Stoya talked publicly about the fact that he had raped her. And a number of other porn actresses came forward to reveal that he had basically done a lot of very violent things without their consent in porn scenes where the men around him had simply stood back and let it happen. Essentially, this goes back to the syndrome I talked about earlier of when you have at the top of any industry a closed loop of white guys talking to white guys about other white guys. You have a male-dominated scenario where the men protect their own and are not looking out for women. And this has parallels in every other industry because it's not unusual at all. I mean, sexual harassment is endemic in my industry, um, advertising. Women write to me about it all the time. And the most appalling things go on 
because in a male-dominated world, other men choose not to see and not to intervene and not to speak out. But Cindy, this guy was masquerading as almost like a borderline mainstream person, as a sex-positive person. He had the imprimatur. I don't understand what's still so guarded about this industry, and I, I do see the universality that he can kind of keep doing that for a while. You should be aware that James Dean, and he said this himself, he did not actively position himself in that way. The media fell upon him and decided to christen him as the feminist porn star. He never positioned himself in, 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 that, in that way at all. Um, but yeah, I go back to my point about when society forces an entire industry into the shadows and underground, you make it a whole lot easier for bad things to happen. You make it a lot more difficult for good things to happen. People cannot fling up their hands in horror at what is going on in the adult industry and at the same time refuse to enable open, ethical, transparent business to be done. I experience this trying to build Make Love Not Porn every day. I can't get funded. I can't open a bank account. I can't put payments in place. PayPal won't work with us. Every single tech service that I want to use for an ethical, transparent, social sex startup, the terms of service always say no adult content. And be it hosting, encoding, encrypting, I have to go to the people at the top of the company, beg to be allowed to use their service, you know, explain what I'm doing. We had to build our entire video streaming platform from scratch ourselves. Online streaming services won't stream adult content. Even something as apparently simple as finding an email partner to send the membership emails out with. MailChimp rejected us, six or seven did. As long as this goes on happening in business, the ability to do a different kind of business, a better, healthier, ethical, more transparent business, um, society is preventing the porn industry from making that happen. That's the issue. Many things are laid at porn store that should be laid at societies. Could you explain that for me, actually? So of, of, of you hear these stories about um, you know, self-determination, several actresses and, and studio people who open up, hang their own shingle. Naturally, they have to take credit card payments. I mean, there has to be a parallel economy to it. MasterCard and American Express and Visa and the like can only be so squeamish. I imagine they hang a shingle as an LLC or something. Are you saying you're not allowed to accept these credit cards or these the, the likes of PayPal will not work with you or you, yep. you can't even work with a MailChimp? Um, no, no, absolutely. And, and that is why um, I talk to the tech and business world about the fact that the three huge disruption opportunities in tech today are sex, cannabis and the blockchain. And ironically, investors are flooding into the other two more than they are the first. What that means is that VCs and startups in cannabis and the blockchain can afford to fund lobbyists, regulation change, public education initiatives, foundations. We need all of that in sex tech, which is my category, by the way. Um, as long as we don't open up to allowing innovation disruption, this most crucial area of our lives, the same bad things go on happening. And yes, you know, you're right, there is a shadow industry, you know, to, um, obviously that has sprung up to service the adult industry. For example, we at Make Love Not Porn can't work with them because their rates are extortionate. The adult industry has nowhere else to go. So there's a, there's um, a pure there's a pure financial arbitrage here and just servicing what we we can't get our heads around kind of the billions that are spent on this industry and, and but we know it's substantial we know from bandwidth numbers we know from other proxies that you can't deny that this is an enormous part of internet traffic and 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 the stuff that we're going to get into in, in virtual reality and interactivity and whatnot is only going to make that grow more so I don't understand how a person gets paid right now. Do they not? I mean, is that really true? Like a credit card company will not deal with an adult yep. film star putting up a studio? Absolutely. And so this is why I realized um, a few years ago that I was going to have to pave my own way. 
I have to break down the business sparrows in my own path to scale Make Love Not Porn to be the billion dollar venture I know it can be. And so I decided to do what I tell other entrepreneurs to do, which is when you have a truly world changing startup, you have to change the world to fit it, not the other way around. I like to say I'm in the Steve Jobs business of reality distortion, because if reality tells me I can't grow Make Love Not Porn the way I want to, I'm going to change reality. And what I mean by that is, a couple of years ago, I deliberately began defining, pioneering and championing my own category, sex tech. I literally wrote the post on sex tech. If you Google what is sex tech, I'm result number one. And sex tech, by the way, is any technology or tech venture designed to innovate, disrupt and enhance in any area of human sexuality and human sexual experience. I speak at tech conferences about the fact the next big thing in tech is disrupting sex. I've been doing all of this while working to raise just $2 million to scale Make Love Not Porn. I've spectacularly failed. And so last year, I realized I was going to have to take this to the next level. If I want to get my startup funded, I have to get the entire category funded. So that was when I decided to raise $10 million to start the world's first and only sex tech fund. If nobody else will, I'm going to. And by the way, Robin, I haven't the faintest idea how you start a fund, but I'm going to anyway. And so I um, gave my fund a name. I registered it as a company. I bought the URL. Um, the name derives from a quote by Chairman Mao, who famously said many years ago, in the interest of gender equality, women hold up half the sky. I think that's relatively unambitious. Mm. My, my fund is called All the Sky Holdings. And the derivative is deliberate because it will have a not exclusive but primary focus on radically innovative sex tech startups founded by women. The most interesting things in sex tech are coming from female founders. We're owning our sexuality, finding unique ways to leverage it in business terms. We get the enormous market that is women's needs, wants and desires historically deemed too embarrassing, shameful or taboo to address in business. And by the way, when you tap into that huge primary market, you also tap into a huge secondary market of extremely happy men. And so, you know, I am taking it one step further and opening up everybody's eyes to this. And to your point, I want to invest in two things, radically innovative sex tech ventures and the infrastructure of sex tech. The first payment processor that sets their own terms, what they consider to be ethical, legal, honest businesses, and opens up to sex tech accordingly, cleans up. Mm. The first bank that goes, we will bank honest, ethical sex tech companies, cleans up. And so I want to invest in infrastructure, not just for my sex tech fund portfolio companies, but so everyone in sex tech can use them. And boy, oh boy, we are talking huge revenue streams. Cindy, I know you are exceedingly well-traveled. You are a jet setter. You are a cosmopolitan. You've been everywhere. But have you ever been to Boca Raton, Florida? I have indeed, <laughs> years ago. It seems like any any little bank, any boutique, any boiler room place would, would, would do this. I mean, it just takes that one marginal player to come out there and say, well, we've backed other things before. For example, I mean, here's the squeamishness. You look at a, a, a Marriott, uh, I don't know, like a hotel chain, or you look at a Comcast, or you look at a media company, and they carry things like this, and they charge for things like this, and yet they're not known as a a kind of a black market industry. They're they're kind of known as a sanitary industry. Surely there has to be a way of kind of slapping, uh, you know, something that's more universally and formally accepted on sex tech. Um, no, you, you would have thought, Robin, wouldn't you? I have to tell you that in, in nine years of working Make Love Not Porn, I, I monitor fintech and the future of money very closely. I'm very public about um, how much we need all of this. Um, you know, followers on Twitter, friends, business contacts have introduced me to a whole bunch of local regional banks and they've all ultimately said no. <laughs> I mean, so so th th this is why, as I say, you know, 
I am changing the world to fit my startup because I am creating, I'm socialising sex, I'm building the social sex revolution precisely to create the receptivity for my own startup and every other sex tech entrepreneur. And it's taking a very long time, but I, I'm slowly seeing, you know, I'm, the social and business acceptability improve. And so I do believe we're at a zeitgeist moment. But, but you know, the, the point I make um, to investors and to, and to financial institutions is, oh my God, guys, the money there is to be made. But the money to be made in two areas, the second one of which right now no one even thinks about because no one thinks it's possible. So the first area is obviously the money to be made out of sex. We all have it. We all enjoy it. Recession proof. Market never goes away. But the second area is the money to be made out of socially acceptable sex. Mm. When you do what we're doing at Make Love Not Porn, socialize sex, make it acceptable and shareable, you potentially double, triple, quadruple your returns when you normalize. People feel feeling really okay about publicly buying into your goods and services, publicly doing what they do with everything else, advocate, share, review, recommend, publicly badge themselves as brand ambassadors. That's the trillion-dollar future we're going after. And the proof it's, it's achievable is out there right now because at this moment, the highest income-grossing author in the world is E.L. James. The author of Fifty Shades of Grey has out-earned Dan Brown, you know, Jim Patterson, all those blockbuster authors. Fifty Shades of Movie broke box office opening weekend records. That is the financial power of socially acceptable, socially shareable sex. Mm. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Joining us from NPR New York City is Make Love Not Porn CEO and founder Cindy Gallup. She's a veteran ad executive. Uh, she's bootstrapping it. She is the leading voice out there for innovation and, and uh, investing in sex tech. I've heard terms, Cindy, that I just always wanted to say on this show because it belongs on Merriam-Webster. I just let me let me just say it. Let me just say right. it. Teledildonics. Is there a better word? Oh at, the end, at the end That's... of this year, I want them yeah. to finally say this is the year of cyber dildonics. Right. Teledildon. I mean, tell me. Give me like a, a passel mm. of like a handful of new right. newfangled terms sure. in this industry. Well, uh, well, by the way, Robert, I'm really glad you brought up teledildonics because so so here's here's an issue for sex. It sounds tech. Orwellian um, almost. I mean, yep. tell, but now no, no, you no, see no, no, it. You, you see it in press releases. You see it on yep. Twitter. Used no. in a very sober way. Teledildonics. Yep. So um, no, and you're absolutely right. It is Orwellian because so in a male-dominated tech world where equally the tech media and tech blogs are male-dominated. Um, Male writers find it a lot more comfortable when they cover sex tech to cover that part of it that is, you know, a lot easier to talk about, which is the hardware. And that's why what you're hearing at the moment is teledildonics, VR porn, sex robots. It's a lot more uncomfortable to talk about the side that I and Make Love Not Porn operate on, the software, which is about people actually having sex with each other. Here's the issue. When all of the awareness the coverage, the promotion and the funding and support therefore goes to the hardware. That is going to the side of sex tech that is all about driving us further and further apart from each other into our own little virtual worlds. And none of the support, awareness, coverage and funding is going to the software side I operate on, which is about bringing people closer together in the real world. Which side do you think is going to have the more beneficial effect on the future of humanity? Mm. 
I see. I think I think we should bring out Donald Fagan of Steely Dan and have them tour as, you know, an album called Teledildonics 2017. That's the way to go. <laughs> it may yet happen. <laughs> Cindy, I want to get at uh, disruption that we're talking about in the hmm. street on the downside because you talk media and content and you are a veteran of the ad industry. Um, this Economist story in 2015 said that in the United States, the number of porn studios is now down from over 200 to 20, uh, says the founder of XBiz, a trade publication. Performers who used to make $1,500 an hour now get five. Even as increased competition means they are asked to produce more extreme content. There's just been an explosion of free content. The barriers to entry, I mean, uh, you know, putting a putting a cork and stopping this stuff from coming out is impossible at this point. So you look at that in parallel to the magazine industry or to uh, TV and piracy and everything. How in the world can this be monetized? I've spoken to actresses, for example, one in Manhattan revealed to me that she had a heroin addiction and increasingly putting up with the with the um, much lower day rate or shoot rate that she could get. She's also on this site where she offers herself as an escort in Vegas and Atlantic City. You have to increasingly do things, she says, that she'd never thought she'd have to do. What are you hearing from the ground in terms of the financial returns from, let's call them content creators? Sure. So, so I gave a talk at the New York City Porn Film Festival um, two years ago on how to make money out of porn, redesigning the industry business model. I designed our revenue sharing business model at Make Love Not Porn to be the exact opposite of the porn industry model. Um, and by the way, um, uh, where, where that comes from is because I believe very strongly that everybody should realize the value of what they create. And I feel that particularly strongly because my background is theater and advertising, two industries where ideas and creativity are massively undervalued even by the creators themselves. So I believe that, you know, um, the more people you give more pleasure to with what you create, the more money you should make out of it. And, and, and that is Make Love Not Porn's revenue sharing model where half of of the income from renting social sex videos goes to our Make Love Not Porn stars. It's the opposite of the porn's model because in porn, whether you are a relative newbie or one of the world's most famous porn stars, you are only ever paid by the scene. The pay scale for a scene will range from at the bottom end a few hundred dollars to at the top end, again, whether you are one of the world's most famous porn stars, it caps out, it, it maxes out at, you know, $1,000 to $2,000. That scene will then go on to be viewed, and I use this numeric advisedly, trillions of times on Brazzers, Naughty America, Pornhub, wherever it is, and the porn stars in it will never see a cent from any of those views. There are no residuals in porn. If there were, it would be a very different industry. Mm. And so, you know, I talk to the porn industry, as I do our own industry and every other industry, about how to redesign um, and disrupt with different business models. The reason that's imperative, um, by the way, in, in a much broader sense, is I bring a unique perspective to the porn industry, I bring a business perspective. It's unique not because I'm anything rare or special, I'm not, but because the people whose brilliant business brains populate the pages of the Half a Business Review and the stages of TED have zero interest in turning any of that brilliance on the adult industry. But they should, because everything we're talking about today, Robin, um, is driven by business issues and requires business solutions. Here's what I mean by that. Um, porn's like any other industry that I study as a business consultant. It's become so big, it's become conventional. So porn now has norms and rules and conventions, which is why so much is so repetitive and boring. Mm -hmm. It's fallen prey to the business syndrome that I call collaborative competition, which is where everybody in a sector competes with else in the sector by doing exactly the same thing everyone else in the sector is doing. And 
porn is tanking because its old world order business model, as you observed, has been destroyed by the advent of free porn online and it hasn't invented a new one. Now, every dynamic um, I've just cited is also true of the music industry, of publishing, of television, movies, advertising. It's just the way these dynamics manifest in porn is more controversial and distressing. So the explosive growth in extreme violent porn is not driven by <gasps> evil, twisted, malignant, vicious forces in the porn stream. It is not driven by, oh my God, we've all become more depraved and corrupt as human beings. It's driven by, very prosaically, very boringly, a bunch of guys scared shitless because they're not making any money, doing what bunches of guys scared shitless not making money do in any industry, which is play it safe. Oh, look, they're all doing that. Let's do that too. Oh, look, that must be what the consumer wants. That must be what they pay for. Let's do that too. As in washing powder, so in porn. And the analogy I draw is with reality television. Because reality TV was pioneered 20 years ago by amazing shows like MTV's The Osbournes, The Real, the Real World. Sure. Then everyone else jumped on the bandwagon and it descended into the morass we have today of Real Housewives of Everywhere, you know, Jersey Shore, Exactly the same thing happened in porn. And so I go back to my original point, which is the answer to all of this is not to shut down, censor, clamp down, block, repress, but to open up. Open up to innovation, disruption and designing new business models. And you will see a very different kind of industry and a far better, healthier one. Is it a canard that that saying from the futurist 30 years ago that content just wants to be free? Absolutely. Um, that's not true at all. Content is desperate to be paid for. <laughs> you can take it from me. And, um, and, you know, the interesting thing, by the way, is so with Make Love Not Porn, despite all our business challenges, we began taking in revenue on day one. Our revenue is very low. It's in the extremely low five figures each month. And by the way, frustratingly, if we could work with PayPal, work with mainstream credit card processors, we would triple that income overnight without doing anything else. That's how much of an obstacle that is. But in a world where the received wisdom is nobody pays for porn, our community is paying for social sex because they see the value it brings. You know, what sells is what has always sold, individual creative vision. And so, you know, when... when somebody is enabled and supported and funded to execute their vision, you get extraordinary product that people will pay for. This is why, by the way, I've been saying for years that, you know, I would like one day to be in a financial position to start the Y Combinator of porn. My young friends in the porn industry have amazing ideas. Am I naive, am I naive to think that someone like Alina Dunham just wouldn't write you a huge check for something like that? A lot of people tweet at her about me and, and you know, uh, vice versa. Um, but but no, um, no. Uh, fear of what other people think. Um, as Does I she said care earlier, what other just, people think? I mean, there are, I, I, from, my, from my vantage point, it seems like there are already people who have crossed that Rubicon, mm. that they've shattered that taboo, you, that we've left that behind. You would behind. think, wouldn't you? I, I, I mean, she knows who we are. She knows what we're doing. I would love that to happen. Um, I continue to look for that person who really will. I mean, I've... Um, I've, I've met a number of investors who are interested in funding us, but they're all waiting for that one big lead investor who will make that big vote of confidence and then all, all, all come in behind. Is there, a, is there a person in the mainstream, whether politically or in the Fortune 500, who is potentially a torchbearer for normalizing um, the perception of sex tech in the sex industry in this country? Is there anyone out there with you in but, parallel? 
Um, well, um, you know, people say to me, oh, my God, Cindy, you should meet Richard Branson. I go, great, introduce me, <laughs> because I need, I need personal interest, these people. So uh, actually, my answer, Robin, to be, to be frank, is I don't know, because sex is the one area where you cannot tell from the outside what anybody thinks on the inside. You know, I've met people where you would have thought they would totally get it, and they don't. And I've equally met people whom I thought were really prudish, who totally got it and fully support us. So it's actually very hard to tell from public personas. And there aren't any of these Boca Raton banks or SoCal Orange County banks that are coming to you and say, hey, look, we could set up a special purpose vehicle. We can. I mean, look, I I know from my from my days at an investment bank, for example, there were unscrupulous associates who would know that you go to the strip club in Atlanta that builds itself a star restaurant group. Right. Because they could discreetly bill something that there has to be a parallel. I'm not saying a money laundering vessel for this, but but some sort of facade or patina that that lets you. I mean, when you talk about tripling your revenue with this bottleneck. That, that there have to be providers there. Yeah. I mean, you'd think, wouldn't you, Robin, especially as, by the way, we are completely ethical, legal, honest, transparent, etc. But, I mean, here's an indicator of how enormous this, this final frontier is. Every year, um, and so this is going to happen, in, in a few months' time, um, Mary Meeker um, for... Cl- uh, Star Wall Perkins. Street internet analyst back yep, in the day absolutely. from Morgan Stanley, and yep. she's a client of um, now. now. Yep, now a partner at Kleiner Perkins. So in May, Mary Meeker is going to do what she does every year, which is she is going to release her eagerly awaited annual Internet Trends report. Um, 200 slides of every possible trend on the Internet. I guarantee you that this year, as she has done every single year that she's been doing this, Mary Meeker's 200-page presentation will once again completely exclude and fail to mention anything about the single biggest use of the internet, porn, and its single biggest societal trend, its impact on real world sex. And by the way, every year when this happens, I tweet at Mary Meek and Kleiner Perkins and point this out, and no one's ever responded to me. But but that's how big the barrier is. Mary Meeker's annual internet trends report makes zero mention of porn. It's beyond a 20-ton elephant in the room at that point. I mean, you, you'd think a bunch of these bankers mm. in the breakout rooms would go out and say, listen, mm. we need to reincorporate. We need to move mm. to Vegas. We need to – again, I'm, I'm, I'm naive in saying this, but if the, the opportunity was that big and that kind of money was being mm. left on the table, that people would reincorporate, you'd imagine. No, absolutely. And so, Robin, I'd love to talk, if you don't mind, about um, this new documentary that's mm-hmm. that's we're launching next week about us. Tell is me about it okay it. if I? Yeah. Um, the reason why I'm I'm so excited about this is well, well, two reasons. Well, tell us First the name of, all, of the documentary. Back up, back up, sure. and tell us about it. Sure. So next week we are launching "Make Love Not Porn: The Social Sex Revolution." It, it's a documentary short about us and what we're doing. And the reason it came about was because um, historically I've been very disappointed in the fact that my industry advertising has been notably unsupportive of Make Love Not Porn. And what I mean by that is I have many friends in the industry who are very supportive on an individual basis. And actually the industry media, you know, Ad Age, Ad Week, um, The Drum, um, uh, lots of publications have been very supportive to have covered us a lot. But in terms of the actual companies, the agencies, and the ability to support a big creative idea designed to do a lot of social benefit and make a lot of money has been lacking at the corporate level. So last year, I was therefore very surprised when agency Chandelier Creative, based here in New York, reached out to me and said they have a house in the Hamptons they call Mermaid Ranch, which um, they use as a summer office for their people. 
And they also invite artists to take up residence at Mermaid Ranch for periods of time. So they reached out and said, we would love you and um, your Make Love Not Porn team to take up residence at Mermaid Ranch this summer. Um, we're theming it the summer of sex and love, inviting artists to come and hang out there. And all we ask is that you create some form of output at the end of this that we can then showcase and celebrate um, as a result of your stay at Mermaid Ranch. And so my amazing community manager curator at Make Love Not Porn, Sarah Beale, had this great idea. She said, why don't we, you know, hang, hang out at Mermaid Ranch, invite some of our Make Love Not Porn stars to come there and film a little documentary about who we are, what we're doing, that enables the world to see it for themselves and realise this is a very different um, approach to that last area of human relationships and lives that social networks and platforms don't allow you to celebrate. So um, Chandelier flung themselves into this. They've been amazing partners, so supportive. Um, Richard Christensen, the founder, is just absolutely terrific. Jason Harler, um, we've been working with him. We um, worked with this wonderful director, Thalia Mavros of The Front, and so over a week last summer, um, we shot this little 15-minute documentary, which we are launching next week, and, and so I'm excited, first of all, for, you know, my industry's um, finally um, uh, support for what we're doing in, in, the, in the shape of Chandelier in the front. But secondly, I'm excited because, you know, when I talk about what we're doing in Make Love Not Porn, because we're so screwed up about sex, whenever you mention sex, people's minds always go to really dark places. You know? <laughs> or they go, oh, my God, sordid, sleazy, you know. And so what Make Love Not Porn, the social sex revolution documentary does is... It shows you why the way people describe our social sex videos is with adjectives like adorable, charming, mm. lovely, sweet, because this is a visual manifestation of what we're doing. Um, and by the way, it's utterly safe for work. Um, that um, really gets people to what we mean when we talk about the social sex revolution a whole lot more quickly. And so... Um, as I say, we're launching that, that with a screening next Wednesday, February 8th. And after that, we'll make the documentary available online. And I really look forward to having it give people a much clearer idea of who we are and what we're doing. Cindy Gallup of Make Love Not Porn, in the 10 minutes or so that we have left, tell us about the brave new frontier virtual reality, which everyone, after all, is talking mm. about in Facebook and Oculus Rift. What have you tried out there? What do you what do you see as kind of the ultimate killer app that, that kind of takes us to um, – that brave new world of virtual reality sex. I mean, I finished watching the first season of Westworld. Um, I don't know if you've watched that, but for example, these bots that that uh, you know effectively uh, make a man irrelevant. <laughs> that that a, a, a powerful woman can just hire a person on the side or, or have him remotely. Uh, have you have you seen anything like that out there? Sure. So so, so um, first of all, um, uh, just to respond to that. Um, I can promise you, and this is what Make Love Not Porn is all about, there is absolutely no substitute for real, wonderful, beautiful, ridiculous, gorgeous, real skin on real skin, human real world sex. Okay, the best sex robot in the world cannot give you that. So there will never be any substitute for that. Um, secondly, I'm a huge fan of VR. Um, it's the first form of technology to deliver something that no other form of tech ever has, which is empathy. VR literally enables you to walk in somebody else's shoes. And there is tremendous applicability for that across every single industry. But thirdly, um, I'm very excited about the implications of VR, not for porn, but for real world sex. We absolutely have a vision for Make Love Not Porn VR, um, 
but unfortunately I need a whole separate um, level of funding to be able, able to make that happen. But, but here's what I mean when I talk about the power of VR and empathy um, in the area of real-world sex. So Charlie Glickman, who is a wonderful sex educator and blogger, wrote a post um, several years ago called How Pegging Can Help Save the World. And I share this post regularly. And, and by the way, for the benefit of your um, audience, for anyone who's not familiar with the term pegging, um, pegging is what happens when in a straight couple, the woman uses a strap on to penetrate the man. And the reason Charlie's post is titled How Pegging Can Help Save the World is because Charlie makes the point that when you are a straight man being pegged by a woman, it completely changes your worldview of what you think sex is. Because when you become, as Charlie puts it, the catcher, not the hitter, you suddenly realize why, as women, we have to be in the mood, why we have to be receptive, why we have to be fully turned on, why emotional dynamics like trust are so important and beneficial in sex. Now, imagine that degree of empathy operating in real-world sex in all sorts of scenarios and situations um, in a way that can very powerfully um, enhance and improve your sex life because it enhances and improves empathy and, and understanding what the other person is Imagine if you go to a corporate retreat and instead of trust falls, you have trust pegs. Oh, I think that'd be fantastic. Oh, my gosh. Mom, mom, everybody, I am so sorry. Cindy, let me just be puritanical for one last fleeting 10 seconds. I am so sorry to everybody out there. This has to come out. This has to to be talked about. Um, You know, we'll we'll put this behind a paywall and a special tier and a, you know, full disclosure prime. But I always wanted to get Cindy Gallup on this show, and there's no G-rated way to do it. Go ahead. (laughs) Go ahead. Never mind. Carry on. So here's the other interesting thing about... um, VR, real world sex and, and make love, not porn. It, it has the potential to be voyeuristic in a completely different way to, to the way people u- usually use that term. So um, a woman wrote to us at make love, not porn a couple of years ago. And she said, I love your videos. You know, thank you so much for doing this. Then she said, this is probably going to sound really weird. But one of the things I love about watching your videos is I love seeing the insides of other people's houses. And I wrote back and said, oh my God, it's, not, it's, not, it's, it's not weird at all because I love that too. Because our Make Love Not Porn stars are having real world sex everywhere, you know, <laughs> on the kitchen floor, in the shower, you know, to, um, in the living room. One couple, the husband built a new shed in their garden and then to celebrate him completing it, they actually had sex on the roof of their shed. And, and, they, and they videoed that and, and shared them. it with us. And so when I talk about voyeurism, the fascinating thing about our real world sex, social sex videos is that... You are you are glimpsing somebody else's real life, not just their sex life, but their real life. And, and by the way, Robin, the reason amateur is the most explosive growth sector in porn has nothing to do with porn. It has everything to do with the fact that everybody wants to know what everyone else is really doing in bed and nobody does. Mm. And now I make love not porn, we're showing them, but we're also showing them people's real lives in their entirety. And so if you think about the appeal of, you know, watching real world sex in VR where you are literally stepping into somebody else's life, you're not stepping onto a porn set, you're not stepping onto a, you know, um, made up sort of bedroom. You are walking into somebody else's life and experiencing somebody else's life, not just their real world sex. We see very, very interesting social sex opportunities with VR. Hmm. 
Um, I want to know um, who else has made an overture to you in terms of ideas. Uh, do you find that you've become almost this? This uh, I know you're trying to raise money, but if people come to you and said, "I would like an investment. I would like to use you as a conduit for an idea like this," or there's a better way to build a mousetrap. You talked about adult stars coming to you and confessing, you know, for better or for worse. But give me some of the more interesting anecdotes of ideas or, or, or people you've met in the nine years or so. Um, sure. So, um, because, as I said, I deliberately decided to define Pioneer and Champ in my own category, sex tech. I have access to extraordinary sex tech deal flow because literally sex tech entrepreneurs write to me from all around the world every day. And what's very frustrating is, you know, I am drowning um, trying to keep Make Love Not Porn going in the wake of not having found funding yet. I um, to, by the way, we have over 400,000 members, over 200 Make Love Not Porn stars, over 1,000 videos, um, you know, taking income. We've done all of that in four years with only two full-time employees, one of whom is me, unpaid. Scalable or what? But as a result, I am, you know, I wear 16 hats. I'm CEO, CFO, COO, CMO, CSO, CTO. So um, I unfortunately have to write back to these sex tech entrepreneurs and go, I love what you're doing. I can't do anything about it because they're asking for input, feedback, advice, and I, I have no time to give it to them. Um, but I explain that I'm working on something, the sex tech fund, that hopefully one day will allow me to be able to help get them funded and make their ventures scale hugely. And so I see literally every day the fascinating, innovative, disruptive things that people are coming up with around sex tech, which is why, by the way, I want all the sky to be not just a fund, but an incubator, accelerator and sex tech holding company. And so, yes, I mean, I talk to the people who have the vision and the creativity and the innovation to see the huge opportunity that, that this area affords, but they but they struggle with all the same obstacles I do. And that's why I want to bring all of this out into the open and get it supported the way it should be. Because when we change the world through sex, we will all live much happier lives. Cindy, what about the interactions with some of the legacy players in this industry? I'm thinking about kind of Vivid in, in Southern California or Playboy, which is which has kind of crashed and burned and these awful tales about Hugh Hefner. Or I don't know what's left of Penthouse or these other players. It's kind of a it's kind of an equation of innovate or die. But are they willing to kind of take the bold self-disruptive steps that you're talking about to get there? Unfortunately not. No, I mean, I mean, the old world order of porn is, I mean, it's actually like, like the old world order of, of any other industry. Um, when you've benefited hugely from an old world order business model, it's very hard to see your way forward with a new one. Um, and, and and by the way, you know, I um, um, a number of them have reached out. I mean, I very much appreciate the fact that people like Alec Helmy of Xbiz reached out to me wanting to partner in some form or other. Nikki Guccione, Bob Guccione's son, has reached out. Um, I actually, I had a great conversation with, um, so a couple of years, uh, well, a few years ago now, I interviewed Larry Flint um, for the opening keynote session of a conference in LA. I didn't know he was still alive. Uh, I'm sorry. Oh, 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 no, no, very much so. And in fact, I mean, he, he's phenomenal. We, we got on very well. Um, he invited me to lunch next time I was in LA and we had a great lunch. And actually, he said something that absolutely exemplifies what I mean about socializing sex. Because um, before we went out on stage, I was in the green room with him just running through the questions I was planning to ask him. And one of my questions was going to be, you know, Larry, you pioneered in an industry where no one is ever encouraged to pioneer. And I was going to go on and ask him, you know, what would you say to other people to encourage them to pioneer too? But he stopped me and he said, I never thought of myself as a pioneer because I just didn't think I was doing anything wrong. Mm. And I love that statement. You know, that is exactly what I mean when I talk about socializing sex. Opening up, bringing it all out um, 
you know, normalizing this universal air of human experience in a way that, as I say, creates a much healthier culture, better sexual values, better sexual behavior, and a better world for all of us. Cindy Gallup, founder and CEO of Make Love Not Porn. Thank you so much for uh, making the time to show up and, and come on our tiny, struggling show. I hope it helps you get investors and helps you get the word out. Robin, I enormously appreciate the opportunity. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Full disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine. Special thanks to Neil Rauch at NPR New York City. Hey, we are on NPR One, iTunes at Full D Radio, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Twitter at Full D Radio, Facebook.com slash Full D Radio. Holler if you'd like to sponsor. We are sex positive, ribbed for your pleasure, pegged to the news. Would you like me to seduce you? I'm Robin Farzad, and if my wife doesn't kill me when I get home tonight, I'm back with you next week.